Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, please don't worry, it'll, it'll be up on the screen. But it's always good if you have one, just to see that, that it's there. Now, if you sort of see me rubbing my eyes or, or sniffing or clearing my throat, um, out of nowhere this week, my hay fever, which hadn't really bothered me for about a year or two, has come back and hit me with like a ton, ton of bricks, which is ironic given the, the series that we're doing, um, that talking about sort of flowers and all, and it says, yeah, well, we'll show him, we'll show him. And I've, it feels like I've just been hit. Uh, but we're going to continue this series, and the idea behind it is that we're looking at, at the natural or nature's metaphors in, in the Bible. You see, the Christian life should not be one of fake attitudes or forced effort to try and be someone that we're not. And a lot of times that can sort of feel like what it happens to be. Whether you're a Christian in the church, sometimes you're feeling that you're having to force yourself to do something and to be someone that you're not really feeling. Well, that's not really who I am inside. And even for those who are outside the church, sometimes looking at saying, you're trying to be cool and you're not. You're trying to be relevant and you're not. Or you're trying to be, and it's not working. But actually, the Christian life is not one of enforcing rules and regulations on people, but one of effortless beauty. That, by the way, is the two words that I use to describe my wife. Effortless beauty. Now, that's just me putting some brownie points in the bag. I'll probably need them at some point, so it's always good having them in the bag. Seriously, though, a Christian should be a beautiful character. Not because they're trying really hard to be liked, to be the most popular person in the room or the smartest person in the room, or trying really hard to be liked. Because let's be honest, whenever you have someone who's trying really hard, it can be cheesy, it can be a wee bit embarrassing. But rather, like a flower, for example, there is a life in us that if cared for and nurtured properly, will naturally be beautiful, will naturally grow, and as we saw last week, will naturally draw other life to it. Not because it's huffing and puffing and demanding attention, but actually it's the fact that it's just simply beautiful, and that's what draws others. And to me, that's just a perfect picture of what the Christian life ought to be. But let's be honest. We all know Christians who do not fit that description. And there are some really bad examples of Christians doing things and saying things that make people recoil and actually rather than drawing people towards Christ, actually push people away from Christ. And the best bit is these same Christians will complain, oh, there's no one coming to church this weather. Oh, there's no, oh, they can't handle all the rules. They can't handle it. And the fact is, well, Golf clubs can be quite snobby and have lots of rules, but they've no problem bringing members in. Because, let's be honest, it's not the rules that bother people. Our society is built on rules. What really bothers people is often the people who try and force the rules. Right? I mean, who likes the tax man? Who likes the traffic warden? It's not the rules that we don't like. It's the people who try to enforce them. And sometimes how they do it really gets under our skin. So what I want to do this morning is move the conversation on from talking about blossoming Christians, how to be fruitful, how to be attractive, how to be uh, sort of this, this kind of uh, picture of effortless beauty to the world around us, and rather going from blossoming Christians to look at blooming Christians. You know that sort of thing where you kind of go, oh, blooming Christians. 
Because what happens when, as Christians, we sow seeds that leave a bad taste in people's mouths? It has a detrimental effect. And so, in, so often in trying to do this, people, in trying to deal with this, people fall into a trap. They fall into this trap of saying, right, well, okay, the way to get around this is to go back to forcing it, making more effort. If we try harder, if we go back to that being cheesy and being that person who we're not really being inside, but if we force it on the outside, it will change the reality on the inside. And that's really a very dangerous thing to do. And so what I want to do is rather than trying to encourage people to going back to the cheesy, un unauthentic principles, what I would rather try and do is let's deal with the issue of why we're leaving a bad taste in people's mouths. Let's maybe address the issue so that it goes away rather than just trying to hide it up and paper over the cracks. And so what I've called this message, I've called it the, the harvest of a bitter heart. Because I think that's one of the biggest causes of leaving this bad taste. Someone who, who is perhaps miserable growing up in church, knows all the rules and regulations, don't do this, don't do that, don't do And it's like, oh, this is horrible. And then they kind of get up into adulthood, and so they have to enforce all the same rules on everyone else. Well, I didn't have fun in church. You're not allowed to have fun in church. And I make sure they're miserable. And it's really coming from bitterness and pride. Or perhaps we had our heart broken. And so the reaction is to be dismissive or critical of other people in relationships or in your relationships. And it's a bitterness in our own heart. We've been hurt. And then we, don't, we kind of project that onto other people. Maybe it was a church that hurt you or a Christian that hurt you. And so they pull back and, and you refuse to connect. You refuse to get involved because you've been hurt and you're cynical and you're bitter towards that kind of openness again. Everyone knows Winston Churchill. Most people know that there was a long rivalry between him and a woman called Lady Astor. And they would often say really horrible things to each other uh, in public. Um, and it got really bad at one stage. Uh, one example is that Lady Astor turned to Winston Churchill and says, I would, if you were my husband, I would poison your tea. And unfazed, Churchill immediately responded, Madam, if I were your husband, I would drink that tea. <laughs> but everyone can probably think of a bitter person. You could probably think of someone right now who goes, yeah, they're, they're, they've been hurt or, or they, they haven't got over this thing and it's defining them and they're holding on to it. We'll kind of talk a wee bit about some of those characteristics as we go through. And yet the truth is there are probably more of us who are bitter because we don't like to admit it in ourselves. We like to see it in other people, but we don't like to see it in, in ourselves. And yet when we are bitter on the inside, it will make us bitter on the outside and it will leave a bad taste in other people's mouths. And so let me ask, is there someone who just makes your blood boil? Is there someone that you, that, that you think of, and you're probably thinking of them right now, and it's just like, uh, yeah, I can pretty much work with anyone, but see that person? I can't be half on them. If I had to be locked up in a room with one of them or that person, only one of us would be walking out of that room. Uh, and, and there's just this one person or there's this one memory that you have and, and, and you can't really talk about it yet and you can't really... You, and it's hard and it actually impacts you. You may have to deal with the harvest of a bitter 
heart. Someone once said, bitter people are like porcupines. They may have many fine points, but it's very hard to get close to them. They're hard to get close to because they're harsh, they're critical, they're unforgiving, they're judgmental, they're cynical, they're sarcastic, they're angry. And yet all these things in and of themselves, they kind of have been allowed to grow and fester into something that's now part of their character. Another example you might want to say is, well, some, some of these people are like icebergs. They're cold towards you. They're very cold, shouldered. But the truth is that we only see the tip of it. There's a lot of stuff going happening down underneath in the depths. And so let's have a look at this. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 12 says, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So here's the thing that we're going to see about the harvest of a bitter heart. Number one, it starts from a small seed. The metaphor in Hebrews 12 is one of a runner. And he's getting, uh, he's starting to tire. And he's starting to get discouraged. He, he doesn't think he's going to finish the race. He wants to give up. And he's hurting. And his hands are dripping down. And you know, you sort of see the tired runners. Because they start kind of running. You know, the ha- they start to do the Thunderbird thing. Because they're getting tired. And their form goes. Their, their posture goes. It's becoming exhausted. And the knees start to go. And yet in the second verse, verse 13, he's veering off his path. He's getting into the next lane. He's on a collision course with other runners. Because this often happens when we get discouraged. This very often happens when we start to get exhausted. We start to bump into other people. We start to clash with other people. You're trying to run alongside us. And we end up maybe hurting ourselves and hurting others. And so the picture then is of a Christian running the race. And Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, don't let tiredness, don't let anger and frustration in running turn into something that hurts other people around you or hurts yourself. Keep running straight. Excuse me. And so he says, pursue peace with everyone. Why does he say that? Because even though it should be natural for a Christian, part of this effortless beauty to get along with people. That's the goal. It should be the goal. It should be the reality. But the truth is, nobody is perfect. We still fall short of this, and we can get hurt, and we can feel betrayed. We can feel let down. And that's why Paul's, uh, not Paul, the writer of Hebrews says, strive for peace. Make the effort to be at peace with people. It's not always going to be possible with other people around you, but your job is to strive towards that because that is the goal. In fact, the whole premise of Hebrews 12 is about these people in our lives that can discourage us and make life hard for us and make us bitter and discouraged. 
He starts with the chapter with this running metaphor and he continues on. Keep going, keep running well. And then he points to Jesus, consider him. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself. He means how the fact that people took him and put him on a cross and put nails through his feet, nails through his hands, spear in his side. They put thorns into his, cr- his skull. Consider him so that you don't grow weary or faint-hearted. What it, what's he saying? Well, one of the things that he's saying, because these verses are crammed with such, so much stuff, one of the things that he's saying is, look, Jesus went through a lot to achieve what he achieved for us. He didn't let other people deny him his true identity or his true purpose. And then he, he turns back to us as the readers and says, okay, so consider him. And don't let these people who make life hard, who either act in bitterness towards us or make us start to feel a wee bit bitter and a wee bit resentful towards them, don't let them define who you are. Don't let these kind of people have control over your life. Don't let them stop you from being that beautiful flower that God wanted you to be. Or the running athlete. Whatever the metaphor is that you want to use for the Christian, fine, go for it. But whatever it is, don't let other people stop you from being that. Don't let these people hold you down, hold you back. Don't give them that kind of power in your life. Don't let them dictate the type of person that you're going to be. Because when people are discouraged, like this runner here, Whenever you are discouraged, you are most vulnerable to the kind of things that lead you to bitterness. So where does this bitterness come from? It comes from a seed of anger planted by somebody who has hurt you. Bitterness begins to germinate. And when something happens that you don't think you deserve, I don't deserve this, this isn't right, this isn't fair. I don't know why this is happening to me. I don't deserve this. Like the college student who, when he got his exam results, he realized that the teacher had given him a zero. And he went to this teacher and says, sir, I mean, come on. I, I don't deserve this. And the teacher says, you know, son, you're right. But zero was the lowest mark I could give you. Sometimes people will hurt you. Sometimes you don't think that we deserve it. Sometimes it is intentional. Other times it's not intended at all. Sometimes it's not even something that's real. It's completely imaginary, but we still end up being hurt by the, over the head of it. We feel slighted. And, and bitterness is this internalized anger that, that if we hold on to long enough, we'll start to take over and sour everything else in our lives. And so the picture in Hebrews 12 is discouragement has planted a seed of hurt And the hurt is turned into anger. And the anger becomes resentment. And eventually, the resentment becomes bitterness. But it starts with that small seed. (coughs) But it grows. And then what happens is, now when I say the right soil, there's a certain kind of soil that bitterness will grow in better than others. In verse 15, we read that we are to ensure that no one falls short of the grace of God and the root of bitterness grows. So see the link. See this link here. Losing sight of grace leaves room for bitterness. Don't lose sight of grace. <clears throat> if you remember in Matthew 18, Jesus tells the story of a, 
of a man and who owed the king a lot of money. And we're talking about a fortune. And the king arrests him, drags him in in front of him, and the man ends up pleading for his life. Ha, ha, forgive me, I need more time. Uh, but the king then actually, rather than extending the time, says, look, listen, rather than kind of burdening you and burdening your family, what I'm going to do is because I am a great king, because I have so much wealth, I will forgive the debt. You're completely free from any debt. So this man walks out of the palace. And this huge debt that he owed has been wiped clear. And he's walking on air. And then he sees a man down the street who owes him a couple of quid. And he refused to show grace to that man. Had that man been forgiven? Yes. But he had lost sight of the grace that he had received. Because he had been forgiven, but he was unable to forgive others. The, the fact that he had been forgiven by so much by the king didn't change the fact that he wasn't able to do that to others. You deserve the punishment that you get. You owe me the money, and, and it's right, and it's just that you get the punishment that you deserve. But, I mean, I don't deserve it. I've been forgiven. Jesus is telling the story to let people see how slanted our thinking can be. If we have been forgiven, then we should be able to forgive. Because when we lose sight of the forgiveness in our own lives, we start forgetting just how merciful and gracious the King of Heaven has been to us. And so, yes, we need to grow in grace. Because if we don't grow in grace, bad things can grow in us. And one of those bad things is bitterness. Now, some soils are easier to grow and plant things in than others. And so it is with the human heart. There are some people's hearts that are just ripe for growing bitterness. And what kind of heart is that? People who hold on to things and never let them go. If you keep focusing on the wrong that has happened to you down years ago, if you keep chewing on that thing that someone said or that thing that someone did, it will begin to affect you in the present and it will become an essential part of who you are. Your identity will start to be defined by who you are and what they have done to you. Because you become the hurt one. You become the perpetual victim. Nothing is your fault and everything is someone else's fault because, hey, well, this wouldn't have happened if they hadn't said this. It wouldn't have happened if they hadn't have done this. Let me tell you a story of someone who was like that in the Bible. She didn't start out this way, but her name was Naomi in, in the book of Ruth, and we've, we've looked at her recently. Naomi, the, her name means pleasant, agreeable, friendly, and it's a great name. Here comes Miss Pleasant. Here comes Miss Happy. And I can see her coming down the street in Bethlehem, and everyone says, Hello, Pleasant. Hello. Then there's a famine that comes. And she takes uh, her husband and her children off. She loses her children. She loses her husband. She loses everyone who is most important in her life. And she comes back to Bethlehem whenever the famine is over. And people see her and says, Hello, Miss Pleasant. Oh, don't call me that. Don't call me Pleasant. I am not Pleasant anymore. God has dealt bitterly with me. 
Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. That's who I am now. And if you read those verses at the end of chapter 1 in the book of Ruth, four times she blames God. I am bitter because of God. I am bitter because of God. I am bitter. This is who I am now because of what's happened in the past. I am choosing to be defined by it. Bitterness turns you into a perpetual victim. And that's a really bad place to be. It's a very convenient place to be, though, if we're honest. Because, hey, if we're the victim, it's someone else's fault. We are innocent and everyone else is guilty. And we can get away with anything because, hey, I'm the victim here. So you're allowed to hold on to your anger because, hey, you're the victim. You were the one who was wronged. You can blame others because, hey, you were the victim and they were the ones who let you down. And yet if you analyze it very carefully, if you put it under the lens of the Bible, it's really a form of pride, of arrogance. Because whenever you start to say, well, I don't deserve this, I deserve better, I deserve, I deserve... By the way, it's always really dangerous to start praying, Lord, give me what I deserve. Very dangerous to start praying, Lord, give me what I deserve. Because what you deserve is far from what you may think you deserve. But that's a form of pride. To say, well, I don't deserve this. I deserve so much better. So when hurt comes your way, if it's a word that somebody says or if it's an action that somebody does, don't let that take root in your heart. Don't let that thing continue to grow. Don't water it. Don't fertilize it by running after people and saying, here, don't you agree with me? I'm die the victim. Aren't they terrible for what they done? Aren't they terrible for what they did? And, you know, because we always love getting a bit of a crowd. We always love throwing a pity party and inviting everyone because misery loves company. And anyone who'll listen, they'll talk and say, here, did you hear what so-and-so said to me? Did you hear what so-and-so did? Don't fertilize it. Don't water it. Don't encourage it to grow. Don't put it on social media. Horrible thing. See, whenever you see people and they just have this kind of lingering message... Then all the wee comments below, oh, message me, tell me all that's happening. Stop feeding it. Stop feeding it. Stop letting that bitterness grow. Uh, Someone once said that gossip travels fastest on the sourest vines. The world is filled with people who haven't properly dealt with their hurt. And there's people who just don't deal with past hurts. And there's a profile that they'll eventually fall into where they are critical. And they'll always notice how bad things are instead of how good things are. They'll always be hypercritical. They'll be fault finders, sin sniffers. There's something quite right, not quite right about this. There's something, oh, no, well, I'm not. Uh. When they talk about people, they'll not be able to help themselves. There'll always be a wee dig in there somewhere. They'll never be too excited, never be too positive. The focus will always be on the negative. Bitterness will put a scowl on your face and will put venom in your words. Because that hurt has grown into bitterness. 
Number three, bitterness will develop deep roots. The idea here is that people in churches who claim to be um, who claim to be in Jesus, who claim to be Christians, who claim to be forgiven, who claim that, that they are an example of what Christ wants us to be. But the truth is they're not anchored in Jesus. They're anchored in their hurt. And their focus isn't on Jesus and who he has called us to be, to be forgiving, to be loving, to be compassionate, to go and love our enemies. Rather, we're anchored in picking sides. And you're either for me or you're against me. And we anchor it in things that, that, that just are defined by the hurt. It's not about Jesus' grace. And so I'm convinced that there's a lot of people in church who think that they're saved. who think that they're forgiven, but the truth is, it's not real. Because they're not rooted in Christ, they're rooted in hurt. See, bitterness isn't just the surface thing that we can just come and go with. You know, you don't just tell someone, cheer up. You don't tell someone just to get over it, catch yourself on. It's harder than that because it can be defining for who we are. The roots go deep. Colossians 3.19, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. And don't be bitter against them. Sometimes rather than the husband or wife being the better half, say, well, here's my bitter half. Because <laughs> we have a part to hurt our spouses, don't we? We know the right thing to say. We know the right buttons to press. Jesus teaches that an unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. You look at the, the Lord's prayer that he gave us. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others your trespasses, neither will the Father forgive your trespasses. Now, maybe some of you don't like that verse. I'm just saying, look, here's, it's in Scripture. These are the words that Jesus said. You need to deal with these verses. You can't pick and choose and say, well, I don't really like that, so I'm going to skip over it. You have to deal with these verses. And so your problem's not with me, it's with God, because that's what he said. And so all I'm doing is, is saying that we need to respond to this. We have to learn from this. Colossians 3, verse 13. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you must forgive in other words being able and being willing to forgive grows out of where your roots are coming from if they're anchored in Christ if you're rooted in Christ and what he has done then what we will produce and what will come out will be effortlessly beautiful will be inclined to forgive will be inclined to let passes go will be inclined to, to allow those things to happen but if we're rooted in our, in our hurt and what other people have done and what other people have said and we're holding on to that with those roots what's going to happen? I wonder how humbling it is for you to think that God has forgiven you 
how much of a wow factor is it still for you? Because I know that whenever you're just saved, it's like the biggest thing that you can think of. It's like, I can't believe it. And you're bouncing and you're smiling and it's so exciting and it's wonderful. And then over time, it becomes, yeah, I know, I'm I'm forgiven. Of course I'm forgiven. Of course I'm a Christian. And it becomes less and less awesome for us. Think about this for a minute. Just close your eyes and picture the scene. You're standing before a holy God. And all of your thoughts are exposed. All the flaws are out in the open. He sees it all. Every lie, every bit of pride, every act of selfishness, every single sin, and you and the holy God of heaven are looking at each other. And in your gut, you are just so ashamed. You're like Isaiah in chapter 6, whenever he is, he's waiting to see God. He says, oh, I am unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips. I, I can't be here. I can't be here in the presence of God. <coughs> and we see Jesus. And we see the nail-pierced hands. And we see the scar on his side. And we see this, the, 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 his love and his joy in us. And, and he says, okay... I have paid the debt of your sin. All these things that are around, all these things, they're not counted against you because underneath each and every one of them, it says dealt with by the blood of Jesus. Dealt with by the blood of Jesus. White, gone, paid in full. In that moment, in that moment when you realize that it's all been covered and none of that guilt and none of those things that you really do deserve are going to come your way. In that moment, I wonder, with that deep relief and that profound joy, how then do you feel about your parents who let you down? How then do you feel about your ex-spouse who, who was, um, uh, was, was destructive and corrosive? that person who so desperately wronged you, in the light of what God has done for us, how are we going to respond to them? Because whenever I feel most amazed at my own forgiveness and most stunned at the magnitude of what it cost Jesus to make things right for me, to forgive me, I am least angry to those who have wronged me. Because thankfulness and anger just don't sit beside each other. I can't do it. I can't be thankful at my forgiveness and angry at someone who's wronged me at the same time. I can't seek revenge and celebrate my forgiveness at the same time. Bitterness is a way of going right down to the heart of the gospel. Forgiven people forgive people. Hurt people hurt people. This goes deep. Let me just very quickly uh, deal with the last one. Staying in verse 15. What happens after the root of bitterness? It springs up and causes trouble. That means it causes you trouble. And it causes people around you trouble. That's what it means. And by this, by this, that is, by it growing towards you and ruining you, other people become defiled. By this bitterness springing up in you, it has this knock-on effect. 
Bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping the other person's going to get sick. It doesn't work. All it does is corrode you. It's self-destructive. And it saps the peace out of your own life. And it doesn't change anything for the other person. Who wants that? Who wants that? That's what it's like for someone who harbors it and holds on to it and dishes it out. It destroys that same person. And let me know, and it ruins your relationship with God. Now, it won't sever it, it won't take it away, but it will ruin it. 1 John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God, and hates another Christian or a, a brother, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we have not seen? Again, folks, I'm not the one writing this. I'm not the one making these things up. It's here. And you're the one who's going to have to respond to this. Say, well, look, this is the word of God. I believe the Bible. I'm a Christian. I believe the Bible. Okay. Then why can you not hold on to, to this relationship? Or why can't? If you say, I love God and hate a brother, you're a liar. And you think that that bitterness is going to satisfy your heart and get back at that person? It's only hurting yourself. In the book of Acts, in chapter 8, there's a great story, but it's a sad story. Um, Philip has just left Jerusalem, and he's heading up to Samaria, and he's preaching the gospel, and people in Samaria hear it, and they respond, they believe in Jesus, and there's all these amazing things happen. But there's a guy who's not particularly happy about this. Uh, He's called Simon the Sorcerer. And uh, he's a wee bit bitter. See, he's been tricking these people for a long time. He's the local con man. He's the witch doctor. He's the one who's been kind of potions and potions and, you know, placebos all, all day long. And they all thought that he was somebody special until they saw what the Christians had to offer. They saw that natural beauty. They saw that effortless beauty. And all of a sudden, they get top billing and nobody wants to see Simon the Sorcerer anymore. Nobody's subscribing to his channel. Nobody's following him anymore. So he gets really annoyed and worked up about this. And he goes to the apostles and he offers to give them money to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, look, how much does this thing cost? I want in. Whatever use of God, I want some of this. And Peter turns around and says to him, you're poisoned by bitterness. You're bound by iniquity. See, the disciples, the apostles, they were uh, getting more attention than Simon. And he's angry at that. He, he, he's lost the, the, the star billing. He's lost his popularity. And so he, he, he's bitter against them. And Peter kneels it. He says, you're poisoned by this bitterness. And so Peter then goes on and says, look, so repent. I've called this out. I've identified it in your life. Repent. And perhaps the thought of your heart will be forgiven. The word bitter and better both start with B and end with ter. But what's the difference between the word better and the word bitter? Single letter. Whenever you put I in the word, it becomes bitter. When you take the I out of that word, that's better. When you put yourself in the middle of it, when you make it all about you, 
what you deserve and what you're prone to, you become bitter. Sorry, excuse me. But whenever you take yourself out of the middle of it, whenever you start making it not about me, but about God, when you take out the I and put in thy, Lord, thy will be done. Lord, I, I'm living for, for thy glory. I want your peace and I want, your, and I want people to see you, not me. I'm not going to make this all about me. Life gets so much better when you take I out of it. And I am absolutely certain that everyone here has something or someone in their background that they could use as an excuse to get bitter. And maybe it is making you bitter as you think about it this morning. That's why we need to bring it before the foot of the cross and say, God, it's yours. I'm going to give it to you. I'm giving my life to you. I lay my pain and my hurt and my my memories all before you. Because here the author in Hebrews 12 uses Jesus as the example Look at those mean people, those bad people who arrested Jesus, those bad things. But that didn't stop him being from who he was supposed to be. So consider him. See, they put him on the cross, which was the worst thing they could have done. But yet the cross was the best thing that ever happened to humanity. So the worst thing became the best thing. Couldn't God do that with us? Can all those bitter things that have happened in the past actually make us a better person? Couldn't Jesus bring us to a place where we say, look, it was hard and I I didn't enjoy it, but I'm glad I have walked that path to get to where I am now. So if you take I out of it and put thy into it, and it's all about him, God, whatever you want, it's all about you life will get so much better rather than bitter. Let's pray. Just as we pray, let's ask, let's take these things before him and let's 